0: All right, flop your Bible open. We're going to run around. The message is entitled, What is the Church? We're beginning this series regarding the church to help us understand what the Bible teaches about the church in order that you and I might walk according to the knowledge to glorify Jesus Christ. Too many today are attempting to change the nature of the church in order to make it culturally relevant, politically correct, at the expense of biblical truth. And Christians suck it all, and they don't object about it. Plum lines the word of God. Remember, there are many metaphors that are used for this in the Scripture for the church. As you know, um, they give a perspective for the nature of the church. Um, it is said to be all in relationship to Jesus Christ, the city of God, the temple of God, the family of God. Those are just mentioned a few. We'll cover many of them. And so, let's begin our study by asking three questions. First, what is meant by the church? So we look to the Scriptures, no one else. Second. What is the developed concept of the church as we go through the epistle of the book of Acts? And thirdly, what is the church to do? Let's begin here with what is meant by the church. The misunderstanding of what the church is, by some people, is, uh, is interesting. Uh, some say the church is just a place for uh, religious people and old people where they go to get comforted, and that's where they hide. And uh, for the most part, an observation is true that not many young people are in church. I mean, the Jesus movement through Pastor Chuck was a miracle in itself. Uh, the majority of the time, Satan and the world just ensnares young people. Many of them just got home last night, just a couple hours ago maybe, and they are now uh, sleeping off their drunk or they're regretting their sexual escapade that will, has changed their life forever because they live apart from Jesus Christ. But others say the church is a place where people go to escape reality seeing Christians as weak, gullible, uh, foolish to believe that there's a God. Also seeing Christians as anti-intellectual and that Christians um, are too idealistic, hindering the progressive agenda of the society and the world uh, by being intolerant and being too judgmental to the diversity and the alternate lifestyles that are being pushed today as normal. And still others view the church as to their denominations as to attempting to convert people according to their beliefs that sometimes are tweaked from the context of Scripture or whatever their denomination has passed down, instead of making disciples, which is really what we're to do, disciples of Jesus, not disciples of anybody else. Um, Oftentimes there are um, just the emphasis that, and it's really like Jesus says, that the Pharisees went uh, out of their way to make children children of the devil because they learned the corruption and everything else much sooner and they weren't really proselytized, they weren't making proselytes or disciples of Jesus Christ. Um, then there's those who say the church is an organization to raise money. And, uh, and there's really, you can't fault these people because they have plenty of ammunition as Christians in radio and television and churches. All they do is beg for money. And so the, the, to their observations are right. Um, through their programs, their gimmicks, and everything else. And they are very clever to understand that, that people are easily manipulated and used. And when God clearly says that the people of God are to be fed, not fleece. Feeding the flock of God, not fleecing the flock of God. God will take care of the finances. The people are taught and everything else. God will take care of all that. But the focus is never money. Now, the word used for the church in the New Testament is a very appropriate one. Is the word ecclesia, Two words, ek, out of, and kaleo, to call. And the word is used by, uh, in the Greek to describe a civil assembly of people as in Athens that we see in the book of Acts chapter 19 in that riotous thing. And, it's, and that word was characterized by citizens with power to declare war, peace, and to elect generals and to raise funds. Um, interesting that they all began with prayer also and sacrifice. And um, the word later was used in a wider sense for a convened assembly of citizens um, and, and it depends the context how it is. In Acts 19, it's to question their assembly for that riotous mob against Paul. Now, the word ecclesia describes the ident- and identifies the people who were, have been, and will be called out from the world by the Spirit of God to hear the voice of God. That's the church. You're the church, not the building. You and I heard the voice of God. We were rotten sinners. God convicted us, and we responded to His voice. Jesus calls a person to respond, not merely to believe. For devils believe, but at least they tremble, James 2.19 says. Peter calls us uh, that we are even more diligent. We should be more diligent to make our calling and election sure. Abiding uh, in Christ Jesus, 2 Peter 1.10, that I'm examining my life, comparing my life to the Scriptures. Paul tells us that, moreover, who he predestinated, those he called, those he called, he justified. Those he justified, glorified in, in Romans 8.30. But that's because God sees everything at one time, from the beginning to the end, the end from the beginning. For Him, it's no big deal. For us, we're trying to figure out how it works. Now, <clears throat> there is no contradiction. Those who are called the people of God, those are the, called the community of God's redeem. The very word redeem implies that you belong to God. We were fallen for the, by sin. We inherited sin, and therefore we're separated from God but we belong to God originally from the creation. It's like when you go to a pawn shop and you pawn something, there is a set time that they give you for you able to buy it back. But you don't buy it back, you redeem it. But if you pass that timeline, now somebody can buy it. But they don't think they, that belonged to them at one time, it didn't. You can redeem what belonged to you before, but only someone else can buy it, okay? So he redeems it back to himself. The word ecclesia appears 115 times in the New Testament. In Paul letters sixty-two times. In Acts twenty-four times, Hebrews two times, James one time, Third John three times. Revelation, how many times? Think. Twenty times. Whoa. Acts twenty-four. Revelation twenty times. In the Gospels, three times. Listen, I will build my church. Matthew sixteen, eighteen. And for church discipline, two times in Matthew eighteen, seventeen. That's how often the word church appears. In the New Testament. Notice that Jesus never calls it first campus, second campus. That's a new word today instead of church. Oh, how intellectual they sound. How chic. How naive. How progressive. How dumb. It's the church. The concept and idea throughout the New Testament is clear and unmistakable. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. Our English word is related to the, his, being his church. The Greek word kirkikos. Which means belonging to the Lord. The word appears twice in the New Testament. You find it in um, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty for the Lord's Supper. You find it in Revelation one ten to identify Sunday, the day of the Lord. Now, Paul told the Ephesians elders that Christ is the one who purchased the church with His own blood, as he spoke to the Ephesian elders in Acts twenty twenty eight. So we do not own the church; we are the church. No pastor owns the church. No denomination owns the church. We cannot increase or add to the church. The Holy Spirit does that through the word of God by the grace of Jesus Christ. Now the church is said to be the bride of Christ. A marriage metaphor had been used throughout the Old Testament, as you know. Isaiah uh, 54, 5 says, And for your maker is your husband, he tells Israel. Listen to Isaiah 62, 5. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So the marriage metaphor is always used for God and the people he has relationship with. Hosea, as you know, had to redeem his wife as she sold herself to harlotry. And it was to be a picture of God redeeming Israel in the future out of his love and compassion. In Hosea 2, 7 and 10. Israel is the wife of God put away by divorce. The church is the virgin bride of Christ looking for a wedding. Do not confuse them. The two are distinctly different. Replacement theology teaches that we, the church, are now spiritual Israel. I reject that. That's not what the Bible teaches. The marriage metaphor of the bride continues throughout the New Testament. Um, Though there are many other metaphors, that of a bride is the most intimate and binding experience, which we can identify with. For once we have entered into marriage, we have been changed dramatically. Marriage will transform you. Marriage will affect you forever. You can have a boyfriend. You can have a girlfriend. You can kiss. You can be involved in a relationship sexually. But nothing will affect you like marriage. You will be changed for the rest of your life. As you have made a commitment before God, and God holds you accountable for that covenant. The imagery of marriage is to be brought uh, uh, by the very mind of Christ as we are Christians now. The thoughts of a husband and wife being that of honesty, love, commun- commitment, compassion, passion itself, understanding, forgiveness, communication, and dying to self. If there's no dying to self, none of this will happen. It's impossible. And the natural man wants to live for self. Me, myself, and I, the trinity of darkness. Jesus used the figure of marriage in the parable of the wedding feast. If you remember, the king arranged a marriage for his son. And he likened it to the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 22, 1 through 14. And... um. But they, they they mocked it. All all of those who were invited, they, they 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 mocked it. They made excuses, and it was symbolic of the Jewish nation. His servants went out to the byways. They were sent out. They called the people in, by invitation, speaking of the Gentiles, and the wedding garment was provided. It had to be worn, or the person would be cast out. And there is speaking about eternal damnation. And the man was taken out that didn't have the garment is very clear. The message was God's gift of salvation by Jesus' righteousness that's imputed to us. No one can wear that garment. No one has that garment. It's given to us by the grace of Jesus Christ because of what he did for us. Now, Paul tells us that though the death of Christ, the Jews were dead to the law and that they were free to marry another in Romans 7, 4. Because Jesus fulfilled the law, now it pointed them to Jesus Christ, so now they could be legitimately married to Christ prophetically. The law condemns man. The law never rewards you. you, It accuses you. It condemns you because the law demands perfection, absolute perfection. All of us fall short. But the gospel of Jesus Christ saves us by grace, unmerited favor, undeserved. But there was a price that was paid. It was a high price, the life of the Son of God in your place and mine. John the Baptist said he was a friend of the bridegroom who would uh, hand over the bride to the groom. And he said that because Jesus uh, was bringing more disciples to himself and the disciples of John in John three twenty-five through 29 said, look, they're all going to Jesus. And, and John says, I am the friend of the bridegroom. I'm to hand the bride to him. You know, I've done many weddings in the last 42, 43 years. And uh, two things that um, um, I have never seen is one, a, a bride dragged up and the other one is giving the bride to the friend of the bridegroom. Okay? That, that bride is given to the groom. So now the church is given over to Jesus Christ. Very, very, very clear. The figure of the bride reaches its climax where the relationship of husband and wife is placed side by side with the relationship with Jesus Christ and his church. That's in the epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 21 through 31. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church as he gave himself for her dying to self. Denying self. A tall order, gentlemen, that only can be fulfilled in Christ Jesus. If I don't abide in Christ, I will not fulfill it. I will live for myself. That's the way it is. The church, a bride, in her relationship is united with Christ. A spouse a chaste virgin. In 2 Corinthians 11, 2, we're said. So that's the nature of the church. She belongs to Christ. She's a chaste virgin. Her purity is given to her by virtue of Christ giving himself for her. And his word purifies her and will present her without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing in Ephesians five twenty six 26-27. This type of love is to cause us to be enamored with Christ and love him forevermore. For all of us know where we came from more than anybody else, and we can appreciate the love of Christ for us. Now the bride, uh, in her submissive attitude towards Christ, is uncompromising. In Ephesians five twenty four, he says, in everything parallel, Christ to the church, husbands to wife. The word subject is inuchupotaso, is a military term, and it means to line up under, of course, someone of higher authority. Uh, If you've ever served in the armed services, you know that you salute the rank, not the man. The man could be an idiot. You salute the rank, okay? Now, many people use this to imply that there's inferiority and the woman shouldn't be inferior to the man. The Bible doesn't teach that. Because Jesus Christ is set to be with the same word hoop a tassel submissive to the Father in 1 Corinthians 11.3. Are you willing to say that Jesus is inferior to the Father? No. The word hoop a tassel to submit under, is for efficiency and effectiveness, never inferiority. Never. It is in response to his love by giving himself for the bride. Christ is the head of the church to protect, to provide, and to plan for her future, even as a husband does for his wife, provide and protect. And knowing probably that he will die before her, he makes plans for her future that she's taken care of, right? It's just real simple, parallel. Now, the husband is to follow Christ's example towards his wife. A great call there in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, the espousal was a good, as good as binding as marriage, as you know, in the Jewish community. Uh, in the pledge of expectation of um, her future groom. Uh, Paul reveals this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, that Christ will come for his church to remove her from the earth prior to the tribulation period and being caught up in the air in the rapture. Great promise for her. John reveals the long-awaited day of Christ's return to set up the kingdom on earth of his bride as she is arrayed in white in Revelation 19, 6-9. And John comments, in Revelation 9.9, 9, blessed are they which are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. Listen to the comment of, of Westcott in Ephesians 5.26-27. He loved the church, not because it was holy, but in order to make it holy by union with himself. The husband's love must bear the same test and the outcome of failings of the wife. She is part of him as Christians are of Christ and claims the same tender affection which Christ bestows On the church. Great commentary there. If a person understands the nature of the church from the scriptures, then they will be able to uh, reject and to oppose any and all teachings that violate the nature of the church. As you said, you should be listening, examining what I say. Does it line up with scripture? You can do this at any period in history for any Christian, at any time in the person's life, whatever church they go to, they should examine everything, the scriptures, the plumb line. They can drop you anywhere in the world, and you can sit and open your Bible, and you can say, this man is teaching the Word of God, this man is not. Do you know you have that capacity? Incredible. Listen to Acts 17, 11. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the Word with all readiness of mind, and to search the Scriptures daily to find out if those things are so. The plumb line. I'm not the plumb line. The Word of God is the plumb line. You're not the plumb line. The Word of God is the plumb line. If a person understands the nature of the church from the scriptures, they know that Jesus makes himself fully responsible for his church. Jesus saves people by the gospel, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It's not by the excellency of speech. Jesus convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, as he says through the Holy Spirit in John 14, 16. Jesus defends and is faithful to his church in the great uh, even in great persecution that has come upon her through the centuries, the gates of hell should not prevail against his church, he says in Matthew 16 and 18. It's his church. It's his divine bride. Jesus guides and directs his church. Acts chapter 1 all the way through chapter 28, he guides her. Jesus provides a place and finances for the needs of the church supernaturally and through his people, always faithfully. Listen to Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Not to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That has never changed. To the nature of the church has been consistent. So don't change it. Don't use other words. Follow the scriptures. That is whom what the church is according to the Bible. Secondly, what is the developed concept of the church? It is to Paul that we owe and are indebted for the developed concept of the church to the book of Acts that we see Luke recording and then many of Paul's epistles. Uh, In Ephesians 1.6, everyone in the church has equal standing before God. Nobody has greater favor over another. We all come on the same basis, sinners lost, trusting the grace and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Uh, all are saved by grace through faith, that not, not of ourselves, the gift of God in Ephesians two eight and 9. Uh, all are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. He has things for you to do, me for things to do, but I go to the Lord in Ephesians 2.10. He's the one that directs me. All are one in Christ. The middle wall partition has been broken down. So that means that there is no distinction between Jew, Gentile, Scythian, Barbarian, Greek, Jew, male, female, whatever. Ephesians tells us very clearly. Colossians tells us very clearly. So don't let anybody pitch you between black and white and rich and poor. Those are political things. Those are human things. And they're to divide you so they can conquer you. Simple. If you're a Christian, I could care less what color you are. I could care what culture you come from. You're a new creature. You're to follow Jesus Christ. If ever your culture or your traditions contradict Scripture, your culture goes. Simple. You follow the Scriptures. So simple. Okay? Don't make it difficult. All of the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the gospel of Jesus Christ, him being the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. No one else. All individually and collectively make up the temple of God, one at a time, Ephesians 2.21 and 22. All have access to the full knowledge of the church, the mystery of Christ, hidden for ages until the New Testament church, Ephesians 3.9. Now it's very clear what he had in mind for the church and who she is. All the church is now an open display to God's wisdom, to the angels, Ephesians 3, tells us. The angels are looking down and they can't believe what God has done and how God has done. All are connected in Christ to each one in order to maximize the efficiency and the effectiveness of the body of Christ, Ephesians four sixteen, Just like your body. Now, everyone in the church is different. So the body is compared to many members, as you know, in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Yet it is one body. This illustration works for every generation because everybody understands the concept of the body. All have received the measure of faith, as Romans 12.3 says. So according to your calling and the gifts and the things that God has, He's going to give you that faith. All don't have the same office in Romans 12.4. All have different gifts according to the grace of God, Romans 12.6, Ephesians 4.7. We don't even exercise the same gifts the same way sometimes. All are given gifts severally as God wills. In 1 Corinthians 12, 11 and 18. I'm to seek him, but he decides sovereignty what's best. All is God's divine sovereignty working out through the Holy Spirit in the diversity of the church. Notice diversity means difference, not same. The educators of our day have corrupted the English language. Diversity does not mean same. It means different. Read a good dictionary, not the corrupt progressive dictionary. The body of Christ, diverse, which makes the church a living organism, not an organization to be run by corporate principle or management principles. The head runs it. There is an organization, but it's not an organization in itself. The organization is that by the scriptures and the moving of the Holy Spirit. There is to be shared effectiveness, yet the bigger the church gets, the easier it is to hide and to just go in and go out. God wants you to be active. God wants you to be part of it. Just think if your hand said, I'm not going to work today. Or your foot. So when you're not here, we're missing something. Just simple. You don't have to go very deep. All are to recognize Christ as the head. All are seeking their gifts. All are exercising their gifts. All are seeing themselves as part of the whole. And so you're here for the other person, not just for yourself. Pasadena is but a small portion of the entire body of Christ. Many of the saints are already in heaven. The church is in heaven. Robert's sister just went before the Lord this morning. She's part of the church. A lot of the church is still here. And so all are to recognize their importance for the life of the body. Now listen to the comment of, of Wee's. Uh, the Greek commentary, uh, Tater, at this point. The life of the head flowing through the bands of, su- of supply is constantly joining together and causing the growth together of the individual members. This process being controlled or dominated by the operative energy put forth, the volume of strength of this operative energy coming from the head of the body being. Determined by the capacity of each part to hold and allow the operator to operate in him or her. Every part your hand yields to, you're getting stronger, you're moving the coordination and the whole body. When you put all those parts together, you can do incredible things. You can climb up a tree, you can lift things up, you can run across the street. Can you imagine going to run across the street? Your your foot says, "Uh I'm not doing it. Interesting. All are to recognize the privilege of being called by God through election, and yet it doesn't exclude human responsibility to respond. All are to strive to glorify God, not man or self. In our interdependence, we need one another. In our interrelationship, we affect one another. Today, people believe that it doesn't matter how people live. Really? Do you believe your son and daughter, your husband and wife, can live whatever they want and it's not going to affect the family? Let's get serious. Every time the word church appears, the context must be examined for it is used four different ways. First way is the universal church that represents the entire company of saints, some that are before the Lord already and some that are here. Matthew 16, 1 Corinthians 10, Galatians 1, and Ephesians 1 gives us those passages. Then there's the local church, the actual assembly of believers is in one place gathered together, such as, the church of Antioch, Centuria, Corinth, Thessalonica, or the church of Pasadena. And you find that through scriptures also. The assembly of believers also, thirdly, as the actual gathering of believers in one place for different kinds of fellowship, whatever that may be. First Corinthians 11, 18, 14, 19, and 18, uh, when they do activities, missions, or whatever it may be. But fourthly, the small house church where those congregations met as the church. Romans 16:5, 1 Corinthians 16:19 and Colossians 4:15. This church began from a home church, a home Bible study, and then from there it grew. Now, of the 115 times the word church, ecclesia, appears, only five refer to an assembly or Israel. Acts 7:38, 19:32, 39 and 41 and Hebrews 2:12. So, when somebody tells you the church is the new Israel, tell them to go take a walk. There's a difference. Church is the virgin bride looking for a wedding. Israel is a wife, been married, put away by divorce for harlotry, and will be reconciled to God again after the tribulation period. At Pentecost, the church was officially birthed by the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. God is the one who adds daily to the church such as should be saved. Acts 2:47. No pastor, no teachers ever added one person to the church. All are called to the straight and narrow path, and to enter the same door. The door is Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. The church is his bride, his body. You know, if you have one battery, you have a certain amount of power. But if you put ten batteries, now you've multiplied that energy tenfold. And it's the same with the people in the church. God asks to his church because he wants to expand the work to do whatever he has. While he's doing the individual work in me, he's using that to work in you and different things. And he puts it all together. If a person understands the nature of the church from the scriptures, a person will not fall prey to the new philosophies that contradict, alter, and corrupt the concept of the nature of the church that is very clearly taught in the New Testament. The Gnostics taught that the matter was evil and spirit was good, so they said, "Well, it doesn't matter what you do in your body, you can drink, you can fornicate, you can do whatever, and still worship God. Wow, what a popular church. That's what First John was written for. The Roman Catholic Church teaches salvation through her alone, her dogmas for work of salvation, intercession of saints and virgins, and the co-redemptors of Mary. That's a contradiction to Scripture. Absolutely. The teaching of universalism that everyone's the child of God and we're all going to end up in heaven, even Satan. Really? Wow. Nobody told Jesus about that. Jesus said, on the way, the truth, the life, no man comes to the Father but by me, John 14, 6. So I have to believe Jesus, the New Testament, or religions in man's philosophies. The choice is easy, ladies and gentlemen. If a person understands the nature of the church from the scriptures, a person will not be swayed by the intellectual approach that exalts itself against the biblical teaching about the church by men, who at times are or seem sincere. We cannot judge the heart of man, but we can judge what they teach, and we have to judge what they teach. Robert Schuller was the pioneer of church growth movement, Um, appealing to the intellect of man, of possibility thinking from Norman Peel and others, believing in yourself. By the way, it's the first drive in church. <laughs> Those of you who are too young to look back at him. Donald McGavern was the dean of senior and senior professor of missions of church growth movement here at Fuller Seminary with Peter Wagner, who took his chair. McGavern wrote a book Understanding Church Growth. Man's intellectual approach to how to make the church grow, covering the back door, everything else, getting your church next to a freeway, doing surveys. By the way, all of that, many of the emergent church and friendly seekers do that. The late John Wimber, who used to be with Calvary Chapel, then he divided and he went his way, leader of the Vineyard Ministries, taught with the late uh, Peter Wagner at Fuller Seminary, a course, Signs and Wonders. To teach evangelism through signs and wonders to get people saved. And then they even taught how to raise people from the dead, they said. This is right here in Fuller Seminary, okay? Now, both of these guys are dead. They're gone, and the, word, the church is still here, okay? The word hasn't changed. So who do we believe? Signs and wonders, um, we're not to follow them. They're to follow us. And people are to wonder at the work of God, Okay? God saves people by the gospel, not by miracles. Never by miracles. Miracles don't create faith. Miracles just demand another miracle. That's all they do. If a person understands the nature of the church scripturally, a person will not fall prey to the various movements that promise to make the church grow. Though their man-made methods, doctrines, are corrupting the nature of the church. People believe it. They sit there and they take it all in. Second Peter chapter 2 says they will have many following, great followings from within the church. The positive confession, health and wealth. If you don't have it, uh, if you're not healthy, you're not wealthy, then you don't have faith, right? And they create little, little phrases, seed faith and positive this and that, whatever. And the only ones getting wealthy are the pastors. No one else. They make a big distinction between the Greek word logos and rima. Rima, the spoken words of the power in the words you speak. There's no Greek scholar that would ever agree with their definition of that except for their own footnotes and their own Bible colleges. The Seeker Friendly Church movement of Rick Warren is based on church growth principles of, of, uh, uh, of, um, uh, of Wagner and uh, McGavern in uh, seeking to cultivate Uh, uh, a relevance to the social order of culture according to the people's desire at the expense of the gospel, sin and repentance so many times just ignored completely. It's ecumenical in movement. Pastor Rick Warren is the golden calf of this movement with his 40-day purpose as churches just followed his reading and his book promising that the church would double within 30 days or so or three months. Interesting. The Lord asked to the church... Acts 2.42 says, no one else. The emergent church movement with with the new reformation of theirs, generous orthodoxy, which is nothing but philosophical paganism called Christianity. A perfect example of misrepresenting the gospel in Christianity is called syncretism. You take things that are pagan and you put them under the umbrella of Christianity and you call it Christian. Drop the plumb line. You'll find out it's nothing but paganism in contradiction to the word of God Rick Warren is the stepping stone to the emergent church movement that rejects the Bible by the way as the authority looking down on those who believe in the return of Jesus Christ study their scriptures, their books Brian McLaren says the book of Revelation is about listen, the kingdom of God now claiming Jesus had nothing to say about a period of catastrophe and judgment really? wow one of the Bible he's reading. Leonard Swede, Dan Kimball, Thomas Morton, Richard Foster, and other golden calf from the mid-80s are some of the gurus of the emergent church movement, which Warren embraces being the stepping stone to the emergent church again. They do not believe the life of Jesus was an atoning sacrifice for sins for the whole world, but merely an example to follow. Nor do they believe you can know any objective truth from the scriptures. So they just sit around in dialogue. The pastor doesn't say this is what the Bible says. They say, well, you know, we're not sure and I don't know. What do you think? Isn't that okay, let's love one another. Come back next week. Really? Wow. Many of the God men that God raised up. Um are now gone um, you have uh, Dave Hunt um, you have um, Ray Youngen that just died recently um, you have um, many and yet the heresy keeps growing people just embrace it the emergent church seeks to establish the kingdom of God by good works undermining the word of God and the gospel of grace including all faith as spiritual, not having to be saved. Let's just all love one another. It doesn't matter what you believe. You guys saw the, the, the little video about the Pope, right? And, and he just started reviewing Muslims and Catholics and, and New Agers, and, and they all united in love. didn't matter what you believe. I believe in God. I believe in love. And they, and they kept following this down. Love, love, love. Love without God becomes perverted. If you don't think so, try it. Let me tell you, you will want the biggest chunk for yourself because that's the flesh. Mixing mystical practices of Catholicism, Hinduism, New Age, contradicting the gospel of grace. So this is the developed concept of the church according to the Bible. As you go through it, it's very clear what, what, what the epistles of Paul in the book of Acts declares, what the church is and how it developed. So thirdly, what is the church to do? Very important. Now that we know what it is, the church, first of all, has a mission to the lost, real simple, a mission, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. By calling people to the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel, repentance, the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts, illuminates, and saves, not us. The word preach is carusal. It appears 61 times in the New Testament as a key word. Uh, The figures uh, of a Caruso is a considerable person of importance in the ancient world. That person would be uh, hired. It was a person of high integrity and character. He would be hired by a king or the state to make proclamations. Now, the authority was not his. It was vested to him. The message was not his. It was given to him. He was not responsible for the response of the people, just merely the proclamation. And he always expected a response. What a parallel to us. The authority is not ours, but we proclaim in the authority of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not ours. It's been given to us. I proclaim it. I'm not responsible for your response, but I expect a response, and there will be a response, and God will hold you responsible for that. Wow. That's a carousel. That is our responsibility. That is a high privilege. Missions. To reach the lost. By seeing people send out... By the Lord Jesus directly at times as uh, laboring as missionaries. Jesus is the primary example of the greatest missionary. He left his throne to come to this earth. John 17, read the Lord's Prayer as he prays to the Father. Glorify me with the glory which I had before the world was. He emptied himself of his glory, not his deity. Jesus sent the 12 disciples out, then the 70 in Luke 9 and Luke 10. Jesus gave the great commission to the disciples in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's still in effect. The world is still lost. You know, less people know about uh, Jesus Christ and Coca-Cola today. People know less about Jesus Christ than they did 20 years ago, 10 years ago. With all our technology. Amazing. Jesus called Barabbas. Not Barabbas. uh, Barnabas. And Saul for the work of the ministry in Acts 13:1. Separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work of the ministry which I have called them. And then the church confirmed that the church didn't send them out; Jesus called them and sent them out. Too many churches send people out. That's why they're not effective. God calls and sends people out. We have done missions in Germany, Bulgaria, Scotland, Philippines, Japan, South Central American countries, Mexico, South Pacific, Fiji, Tonga, New Zealand. Many places through the years. Jesus said, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Mark eight thirty four. We are to occupy till he comes, reaching the lost, pulling them out of the fire. But secondly, the church has a ministry to the church to mature the saints. The purpose of the church is not evangelism. It's to mature the saints, to perfect them. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, it says the disciples there um, um, are those who are born again. And God has given some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers in verse 11 of chapter 4 for the perfecting of the saints to equip them as They'll do the work of ministry in verse 12. So you guys get taught, you step out, you, God uses you. Some of you went to Mexico yesterday, you delivered some gifts, some of you are involved in the children's ministry. God anoints you, He calls you. And, and the length of time is till we come to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, the measure of the full stature in Christ in verse 13 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. So that you're growing, maturing, and developing on every level in your Christian life. Then, and also the, that they no longer be taught like children to and fro with every wind of doctrine, and cunning craftiness and deceit of man, in verse 14. You tell your children, you teach them not to hang out with Susie or Johnny, not because you hate Susie or Johnny, but because you know Susie or Johnny are not that good example, and you want your child to walk right. You do it because you love your child, not because you hate other children. All right? We correct, we confront, because we love the truth, and we love Jesus Christ, and want people to understand what the Word of God says has nothing to do with our hatred for them. That's a crazy conclusion. In verse 15, by speaking the truth and love to grow up in all things and to him who is the head of the church. You have one head, I suppose. All I see is one head in everybody here. That's the one that sends the messages. The head is Jesus Christ. We're his members. Also to ensure the healthy effectiveness of the body where every part is supplying its effectiveness to the edification of the saints there in Ephesians 4.16 for the glory of God. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. I am the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John 8, 31 and 32 and John fifteen four and 5 and 6. Abiding in Christ Jesus. Seeing yourself as part of the body. Receiving your directions from him, from him alone as you're growing and you're maturing. Christ will reward us according to our motives in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. God does not impress what I do, how much I do. He's impressed why and how I do it. Do I do it because I love God and I love the person? Then I'll get some reward. If not, it'll be crispy critter. Gone. But thirdly, the church has a mandate to worship God. Revelation 4, 4 through 10, and Revelation 5, 9 through 10, we get the picture of the throne of God. The picture is the church before the throne of God as we have been raptured and we're casting our crowns at his feet because he is worthy of all. The identity can only fit the church. No one else is there. The theme of heaven is worship. That should be the worship here on church. Too much pastor worship, too much church worship, not worship of Jesus, okay? Okay. We must worship Jesus, no one else. Worship comes from the Anglo-Saxon word um, to attribute worth to something. Most words of the Old Testament communicate that idea of prostrating oneself before God because he is worthy, he is greater than us. Moses at Sinai, Ezekiel, study both of them. They're always falling on their face when they see God. Paul, uh, God keeps telling Ezekiel, get up, get up. He's always falling on his face. God's holiness. Worship is understanding and being aware of God's holiness and one's unworthiness. Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Woe is me, Isaiah 5, six 5. Wow. Worship results from God's word and the Holy Spirit filling our hearts. Ephesians five eighteen through nineteen, Colossians three, sixteen through seventeen. Worship, it doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from the Spirit of God and the Word of God, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to know how to worship God, you must know the Word of God. Otherwise, it's based on your emotions. Corporate worship is important, but it must never substitute or replace personal worship. You know where the best place you're to have worship at? When you're driving your car, when you're at home alone, when you're shopping, when you're kids. You can't substitute. If you're just lifting your hands here, this is the only time there's worship, you don't worship God. You worship the people who going look at you. you got to worship God in every day of your life. Our worship is in spirit and in truth in John four twenty three and 24, even as Jesus told the woman of Samaria. This is why the church, the community God redeems, are said to be living stones, a spiritual house, holy priesthood, offer up spiritual sacrifice, acceptable to God through and by Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 2, 5. Jesus is the one that the Father accepts everything through. Worship should never be confined to vocal expression of singing or bodily postures, but service and obedience to God. You might not never believe or thought that obedience is worship. Obedience is the highest form of worship you can give to God. Obedience is the highest form of worship. Your will be done. Well, I don't feel like it. Tough. Obedience is the highest form of worship you can give to God by acknowledge Him as your Savior and your Lord. In service, we worship Him by doing it in His name and through His love in order to give people a proper perspective and representation of who God is. Trusting not our own abilities or powers, but those of Christ through the gifts and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Again, Galatians 3. 28 in Colossians 3.11 says there's neither Greek nor Jew, free nor slave, male nor female, but all are in Christ, uh, circumcised, uncircumcised, Scythian, barbarian, all in Christ. So again, don't let anybody divide you. Don't get caught up in this political stuff or educational stuff, okay? You are a Christian. I could care less of your race. I could care less of your color. I could care less how much money you make. I care. Have you repented? Have you accepted Christ? And are you walking according to the scriptures? That's what makes the church. That's the important thing. The majority of the church today looks more like the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. Um, trusting in her wealth and compatibility with the world, the false church. Jesus exposes her for self-deception. Listen to Revelation 3.17. Because you say I am rich, have uh, become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Wow. Jesus condemns her. If she does not repent, he gives her time to repent. Revelation 3.16 So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I don't need to tell you what that means. By the way, all seven churches, they're the church of Jesus Christ. Five of them, Satan's already in it. Not even the second century yet. (laughs) Corruption comes in right away. The mission of the church is primarily not to do good works, but to proclaim the gospel and be known for its faith in Christ Jesus. I am a pastor teacher, not an evangelist, yet at the end of every message, I will give an altar call, an invitation. I don't do literally altar calls, but I believe if you really are repentant, God will save you right where you're at. The teaching of social activism elevates good works, making faith in Christ secondary. Being a false gospel. Social activism does not make you a Christian. A secret friendly movement of Rick Warren has the peace plan. And he says he's going to get rid in the world poverty, hunger, and AIDS. Well, if you look at the peace plan, it's completely out of context in the book of Luke. The gospel. And secondly, Jesus says, the poor you have with you always, okay? Rick says, I'm going to get rid of the poverty. Jesus says, you're going to have them with you always. Okay, now who should I believe here? Wow. Rick Warren believes the church is going to be bringing the kingdom of God through good works rather than Jesus establishing the kingdom through his, with his church. In fact, he thinks if you study prophecy, particularly the second coming, you're wasting your time. His words, not mine. Wow. And people love it. Paul clearly states, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then we're regenerated. Then the works follow. Works follow after our birth. James 2, and 18 says it very, very clear. The emergent church teaches that pagans are worshiping Jesus. They just do it and without knowing it. So all we have to do is tell them that they continue in their pagan practices, and they're Christians, according to the scriptures. Really? Wow. Paul declared, listen, First 1 Thessalonians 1, nine, he says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, this Thessalonians, Thessalonians, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You can't continue to worship idols. You can't continue to get drunk. You can't continue to fornicate. You can't continue to commit adultery. You can't continue to live like a sinner and say you're a Christian. It's impossible. It's a contradiction. The ministry of the church is to teach the word of God to the saints. Today, the visible church is teaching political correctness, ecumenical uh, gospel of oneness, one with the world's philosophy. No one wants to make judgments or express spiritual error about the scriptures. They don't want to be marginalized. They don't want to be thought of being bigoted or narrow-minded. The world's so open-minded, they, their brains have leaked out. Rick Warren believes all faiths can work together, and he invites all to be one, ecumenicalism. I reject that. Brian Broderson, Pastor of Calvary Chapel, Cosa Mesa, Mason, has gone emerging, okay? I told you that last week. Okay. Chuck's only been dead three years; it happened right away. Interesting. Rick Warren promotes the emergent church and teaches all can have an encounter with God through contemplative prayer. You don't even silence in your mind. You don't even have to come in the name of Jesus. Listen to First Timothy four. 9 through 13. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These saints command and teach, let no one despise your youth, but be an example of the believer in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, exhortation and doctrine, 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 doctrine. Emerging church doesn't believe doctrine, doesn't like doctrine, doesn't want to deal with doctrine. They just want to love one another. You know there's a hug, right? And then there's a hug. Okay, one's good, the one's bad, okay? The mandate of the church is to worship Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen, who is God. Him and Him alone, with all our heart, all our mind, all our strength. And it's according to the Word of God. John puts it this way, Revelation 22, 8, 9, the last book, towards the end. Listen carefully. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that. For I am a fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the word of this book. Worship God. Are we clear the nature of the church? <laughs> this is what the church is to do according to the Bible. So the nature of the church has never changed. The church is always to judge every pastor, every teacher, every teaching, every period of the age of the church to see their teaching the proper nature of the church. This is not campus one, campus two, like many emergent people are calling their churches. The Bible calls it a church. Those called out of darkness into light, ladies and gentlemen. It's not a campus. When you go to school, you might have a campus. The church is the church of Jesus Christ. So the church is a called out people for the purpose of hearing and obeying the voice of God, the bride of Christ, according to the Bible. The developed concept of the church is the body of Christ. He is the head and the church is his body through the various members according to the Bible. And the church is to be seeking the lost, maturing the saints, and worshiping Jesus according to the scriptures. It's amazing how much you can find out if you study the Bible. There isn't enough time. It takes so mu- There's so much in there. The hardest thing I have on Sunday morning or Thursday or any time is, what do I leave out? God's word is rich, ladies and gentlemen. Understand the nature of the church. You are the church. You belong to him. He has made you his, and he alone is responsible for you. And you are accountable to him. Father, we thank you, we praise you, we glorify you. Thank you for this time, and thank you for your word. And thank you for every person here, Lord. Help us as we go through this series that we may learn all about the nature of the church, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the Internet. Right where you sit, you don't need to get up and walk forward. I'm not against altar calls, but I just don't do them. I let you right there. If you're playing games, I'm not going to be complicit with you. If you're not playing games and you're calling his name, he's going to save you right now, forgive you. If everything's ever taken place, I make a new creature of you by grace through faith. Because you believe Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins, paid that atonement, and rose from the dead. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, making an intercession for you. So this is your prayer to him. He's going to forgive you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.